Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I am your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew, for the beginning of Season 2. Take it away, Marie. In night... <laughs> Dude, come on! Now you're just fucking with me. Now you're just messing with me. Now I'm saying 1937. Oh my god! All right, stop. We're leaving it in. We're leaving it in. All right, well, let's go. Let's go. In 1837, Hans Christian Andersen wrote a fairy tale about an emperor so exceedingly fond of clothes that he spent all of his money on being well dressed. He cared nothing about governing his subjects, ruling his military, or building his dynasty. His only passion was showing off his new clothes. One day, weavers came to appear at the emperor's court. They proclaimed to weave the most magnificent fabrics available with colors and patterns of uncommon beauty. The clothes of these weavers' amazing cloth could only be seen by the most rarefied and regal of men. Only those with the wisest of intellects, the purest of heart, and the most discerning of eyes could see the magical clothes from these weavers' looms. Needless to say, our emperor employed the weavers immediately and paid them immense sum from the royal treasury to begin their work at once. The weavers set up their looms and began their work, but to all the royal court, their hands crafted no fabric, just air. Day and night, the weavers toiled, but the results were invisible to everyone. The emperor saw nothing on the weavers' looms, and he felt feared for the worst, for if he could not see the cloth, then he must not be worthy." So when the weavers begged him to be so kind as to give an opinion on their excellent patterns and colors, the emperor exclaimed with delight about its beauty. After weeks of work, the weavers fitted the emperor with his new royal garments. Surrounded by his court, all of the emperor heard were murmurs of praise and approval about his new clothes and their splendor, for even the ministers of his court could not see anything, but no one wanted to look foolish. So magnificent the garments were said to be that a unanimous decision was made to parade the newly coutured emperor in front of all of his royal subjects so that all the land could partake in their splendor. The emperor knighted each of the weavers and paid them handsomely and sent them on their way. Clothed only in his underwear, the emperor led the royal procession into the bitterly cold winter air through the streets of the town, all to show off his new clothes. Needless to say, you, dear listener, knows what happens next. But this old fairy tale raises many interesting questions about magic and the power that people see in clothes, magic that may or may not truly be there. From religious relics to fairy tales to modern-day popular fiction, the belief in magic clothes stays with us to educate and entertain. So let's all don our vestments of magic splendor, grab our staffs and wand, and dig into this episode of Mad Scientist Podcast. That's right, we're doing magic pants. <laughs> it's the sisterhood of magical pants. Let's do it! Let's dive in! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Episode 2, Magical Clothing! <laughs> oh boy! Oh! 2018 Marie. shaping up, shaping up. 2018 started on a shaping high note. Shaping up, starting on a on a giddy high note. We should have we should have started this episode with buttons, <laughs> magical buttons. I was I, so okay before we die before we dig into this episode, Marie. Uh, Marie, you are now the full time co-host of the Mad Scientist podcast. I, I was I'm getting tired of doing this show on my own. 
it's a lonely show without you. So I'm very happy it's, to hear you as a co-host here. I am so thrilled to be officially brought up, brought up from the uh, from the ranks and hosting and hosting full time. Uh, no, ranks. seriously, <laughs> from the ranks, raised upon high. No, um, I'm very excited. I love doing this. I love being able to to shoot the shit uh, with you guys, and then also, you know, I'm so excited to to get more into all this different stuff that we have planned. Yeah, we have so many awesome episodes coming up this season, dear listeners. So this is going to oh my God, yes. officially be season two. Episode season one. duh. Season duh. Uh, you know, the reckoning, I suppose <laughs> one would say. So, yeah. So uh, how was your holiday? Was it good? It was a good time? Uh, it was good. Of course, you, you saw the, uh, the new Jedi movie. <laughs> yeah, I saw it as well. It was good. Loved it. Um, had some people in the family get the flu. So there's, yay, there's that. And, you know, just, just generally Santa was good to us. Did a little traveling and uh, did a little drinking, did a little eating. And now, you know, back on it. Back, back in for 18. Back on the grind. Nice. And how about, how about yourself, sir? Yeah, it was good. It was pretty normal. You know, can't, can't complain. I really don't like, I really don't, I, I like the, I like the stuff around Christmas. Like I like decorating and I like Mm -hmm. uh, food and I like, you know what I mean? Like I like gingerbread and like all that stuff, but I don't, I don't necessarily like the, I don't know. I don't dog. Yeah. yeah, Like I don't, I don't necessarily like the whole, like the whole thing of Christmas or I don't know. It's not, it's never been like my favorite holiday. It's always been Halloween and Christmas is always kind of a Christmas is always kind of a bummer for me a little bit just because of like, it's that's not no, no sun outside and it's, you know what I mean? Like, uh, but uh, yeah, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about that when you originally started, you know, tweeting a little bit about that. I'm like, how is it that you can go from Halloween, which you love to Christmas, which is, you know, you're just like, meh. Yeah, it's not. It's just not the same. There's not as much anarchy, you know. <laughs> yes, no. Christmas is not known for its anarchy. No, it's not my holiday. All right, I so that. so uh, so this episode kind of it's funny. Um, this episode, I I did not think it was going to get as deep as it's gotten, but the Igor has just, I mean, above yes. and beyond, above and beyond That's this so- episode. So we're talking about magical clothing, <laughs> and that's kind of a like very broad term, but basically what we're talking about is the kind of, I think when, when someone says like, you know, uh, you have a magician or something, you, or or even like a wizard or whatever, these people are always depicted as having like a couple of pretty common things, right? They have a robe, Mm -hmm. they have Mm -hmm. a pointed hat, sometimes a, a staff or a wand or something. Um, usually they have a beard, uh, if they're an old man, which they often are depicted as being old men, if they're wizards. Yeah, if they're a wizard worth their salt. Right, they always have a great In beard. In this popular culture, man, you gotta have a beard. Gotta have a beard. Cannot what? deal without the beard. And then there's also know. the idea of, of, there's actually a really interesting history of clothing in mythology and in, just in the world of what we kind of cover on the show, right? I mean... Mm-hmm. There's a whole there's a whole range of things that we can get into. I mean, we're not even going like, to touch on the idea of like UFOs and clothing, like aliens coming down in jumpsuits and crap or fake mm, noses mm. and everything. But there's mm. all kinds of this stuff. So what we wanted to start silver with, jumpsuit. Yeah, the, the silver jumpsuit, all that silver stuff. Silver jumpsuit. Ridiculous. But Love so it. what we wanted to start with here really was 
just the general idea of like, you know, fairy tales have a number of regular motifs to them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Marie, you had done some reading actually from a thesis that someone had written on this subject of clothing or cursed objects or whatever in fairy tales. So it's actually, it's from an article that was written by a woman named Carol Scott, and it's called Magical Dress, Clothing and Transformation in Fairy Tales. And, um, you know, we, again, we started to, to dig into all of this. Igor pulled up so many good things and got me thinking about, like, fairy tales in general. And that's really where you start to see things like The Emperor's New Clothes or Cinderella or stories about a garment that somehow causes a transformation. Um, so, you know, started to do some research and found and found this uh, found this article from her, which basically is saying like it's the idea that clothing are inherently magical, and the transformate it transforms like the ordinary person into a more powerful one, um, and almost like it, the effects of this garment can be somewhat impersonal, like it can be passed from wearer to wearer, but. I think the thing that too that is really interesting to me is this idea of this metamorphosis, right? That somebody can have that can start in one place, like a Cinderella or even a, a emperor, can have something happen to them with the clothes, and then can all of a sudden have this magical event that somehow changes their lives, changes the culture around them and has this everlasting kind of magical effect that may or may not be able to fit in sort of with the moral, sort of what the moral universe of the story is. Yeah, so there's so there's actually some really, like I would say we could probably just pretty, uh, pretty loosely break up these kind of ideas into mm-hmm. a few different categories, right? We have the idea, like you were saying, of the transformation of like, you know, the king, the prince goes from being a nobleman to being a leader, to being almost a god by putting on the crown, right? Mm-hmm. By putting on the vestments of God, of God's chosen leader, they become that leader. There's the idea of clothing as a way to hide your public self and your hidden self, right? And so we're going to mm-hmm. talk a little bit about uh, carnival masks, which is really interesting in Italian, mm. um, sort of an Italian uh, tradition uh, from Venice. There's also the idea of of power versus, you know, the powerful versus the non-powerful, right? Same idea with the, with the clothing of coronation or the clothing of the Pharaohs or, or even the, the regalia that someone trying to be seen as humble or a peasant or something would wear, right? Like a monk's robes. Then you also have the idea, my, my favorite ones, my favorite two ones actually are the idea of clothing as, uh, as a symbol for greed and lust and therefore being used as a sort of punishment or leading to punishment, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, mm-hmm. the idea of clothing as a holy or protective thing. Now, one one facet... So first off, actually, I, I would love to hear the Emperor's New, clo- the Emperor's New Clothes, that story, right? Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what do we each take to be the meaning of that? Because I actually, <laughs> af- you know, after I had read, mm-hmm. after I had reacquainted myself with the story it meant something completely different than what I had thought it meant as a kid, or at least what I had thought of it meaning when I was younger, I suppose. Well, I think to me, when I read it now, I'm looking at it through sort of the lens of magic and belief. I think it's interesting because 
it requires a suspension of logical belief, which is what the story is about. So it doesn't even, to me, it's like the moral of the story is the comeuppance of uh, an emperor who doesn't have his priorities set correctly to help his people. We right? should actually finish that story. You said to your listeners, as you know what happens. As you know what, what if the listener what? doesn't know, doesn't Marie? Know. What the hell so, happens to the king? Everything's fine. It's all good. It's, it's good. No, He's just no, naked. No special counsel is appointed. No, I'm teasing. Nice. I'm teasing. That's my only. That's my only oh my jab there. God. Um. So he goes out on his procession, and the people again don't want to see him. The majority of the of his viewing audience that are lining the streets don't want to seem like they don't know what's going on. So they are all clapping and applauding. And there's one small child who all of a sudden exclaims, the emperor has no clothes. The emperor has no clothes on. And from there, the, that one child sort of stating that simple fact out loud breaks the spell, and everyone realizes they've been duped by these weavers who, who, who set up this story so convincingly that, that everyone, through their own vanity and... Um, and need for sort of this acceptance, it kind of grew in this, you know, almost almost like a contagion outwards that, you know, that if you don't see it, there's something wrong with you. And it just took a, a simple, the simple proclamation of a child to, to have that all go away. Got so that's it. sort of okay. the magic spell. And that's what happens. And then hopefully from there, you know, again, priorities are realigned within that kingdom. And it's a more balanced, benign environment for for all of his for all of his serfs and the right. royal castle right it's i'm sure it's fine i'm sure the serfs are getting <laughs> sure, sure a lot better now yeah I'm so sure. it's it yeah like, so it's sort well, of a story redistribution all that good stuff. right so it's sort of a story about it's sort of a story about self-deception right and and how mm-hmm. these people just from being within this social structure of um this is a person in power and you assume everything must be above board and so what you're seeing, you know, must not be like if you're seeing the emperor with no clothes, you assume because everyone else is acting like he has them that mm-hmm. you there must be something wrong with you. Right. Exactly. And it's not yes. until someone, this child has the kind of the strength of their own convictions or maybe doesn't even know any better. comes out to say, like, you know, hey, shit's not normal. What's up with that guy's nipples? <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and suddenly everyone's exactly. like, oh, my God, they're like dinner plates. You know, and it's over. The emperor's got no clothes. Um, yeah, it's like I, it's. I don't know if that was in Hans Christian's. Uh, let me go back and I'll have to check. No, my, he I'll wanted to check it my in. primary source. He wanted it but, in, though. You wanted, he wanted it in. It, was, I know it was did. written. It was written in the margins, and it just got it got whitewashed. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's a huge part of it. Is like the suspension, this willful suspension of belief. Um, but on something so basic, like I think the thing that's so interesting about that is it's about clothes, right? It's about something that's tangible. And so it's like, it's not so much like, oh, you don't see that ghost over there? How can you not see that, you know? And people believe in that. It's something that's actually physically on his body. And he still, he still is suspending belief that it's not, you know, that it's, that it's actually there. Well, you know what? To me, that's... That's yeah. the thing that's so amazing. And one thing that, that kind of fits in with that that is a quote from uh, from Scott's Carol Scott's uh, article was clothing it, clothing marks the point in which the inner and outer vision meet, the point in which the physical self and the world touch, which mm. I think is sort of this interesting 
again, it's this interesting idea of the mask or the shell or within, on the other side of that is your true self, is your true identity. And on the other side, and then, and then there's the clothes. And then outside of that is whatever the environment is or the, the world writ large type sure. of thing. And this is, this is the filter or this is the barrier or the, the magic that can, can change one or the other back and forth. Sure. Well, you know, it, yeah. it, it almost sets up this idea like we keep a lot of these ideas are intertwined. Right. But the idea that clothing is a there's something magically like we see this all the time in, in books on this kind of subject and folklore generally, too, that there's really something very important in the name of a thing like the mm -hmm. name, you know, having access to the true name of something of some spirit and exorcism, let's say or in holy ritual, or in, um, even in, uh, again, fairy tales, right? Like uh, Rumpelstiltskin, or, or whatever that story is, right? Mm -hmm. Where uh, to have his name is to have power over him. This, uh, this idea comes up a lot, and in some ways, clothing is another way of, I mean, th you know, back in, back before we had access to such huge amounts of clothing as we do now. I mean, now we have like a gluttony, you know, the the idea that we have more than three pairs of pants. You know, my wife has, I mean, my wife has shoes she won't even wear at certain events. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's craziness. The idea that you would have such luxury that you could have a dinner wear pant and a after dinner pant. Like, you know what I mean? The idea of there being more than um, clothes for special times of day or, or whatever. Right. That right. is a, it's a pretty modern conception, Right. And so well, modern as in like, you know, 1700, yeah, well, yeah. the courts, yeah, yeah, yeah. like this is, this is, you know, if you are able to dress for dinner, then that is, that's a social, that's like a social, um, exactly. It's a social standing kind of thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And then to not be dressed the correct way is considered a faux pas. It's considered like yes. a, a social grievance yes. or a transgression. And that kind of brings us to the idea of clothing as transformative as showing power or not power right so you so mm -hmm. one one fascinating i think one fascinating version of this and we're gonna we're gonna talk about two cultures here primarily we're gonna talk about the egyptians and the english mm -hmm. um the egyptians there was some really cool stuff on uh some really cool stuff that I, was found by the igor on the nemes or the it is the ceremonial headdress that the ceremonial headdress that uh pharaohs wore Right. And it's it's mm -hmm. fascinating. It's like meant to be sort of again, it's like a royal vestment that is only worn by the pharaohs or those that are considered to be kingly or queenly, you know, the royal. They're supposed to be close to the gods. And yes. in some ways, in some ways, it's supposed to be almost like a lion's mane. But Egyptologists still don't really know exactly what it's used for. You know what I mean? Like they don't know exactly what it's meant to symbolize or whatever. But then we have modern day druids or you know the the thelema society or mm -hmm. you know, even the modern day uh, druidic cultures or orders that celebrate the egyptian pantheon of gods and whatever they all still wear them anyways too and it's kind of funny I, there's a couple of quotes in there that were like you know oh it's it's just the perfect headwear for all types of weather if it's too hot you can open it up and it lets your neck get cool and if it's oh. too cold you put it over your neck and it stays warm it's great 
It's you know, very practical. Very practical kind of headwear, I suppose. It's a very practical headdress. But so, yes, but so the, the idea, though, of kingly raiments or like the clothing yes. of a king or even a, the clothing of a god has gotten more and more complicated over the years, right? Yes. So yes. like, so the, so you were telling me the British monarchy has some intense oh, clothing <laughs> they have to go so, through. I was, so in my research, I was, you know, again, I was thinking of the emperor's new clothes. I was thinking of Cinderella and there is sort of this idea of the magical transformation happening within um, royalty or within something that is, again, like Chris was saying, that is beyond the station of sort of what your working class people are. It's, it's the elevation and it's the clothes that really elevate a person to that, to that level, or that at least sort of is the door opening event sort of like in, again, in Cinderella, um, she is a scullery maid. She's, you know, scrubbing the cinders by the fireplace with her evil stepmother and her two evil stepsisters and everyone else gets to go to the ball and she doesn't. And as she lays weeping by the fireplace, the fairy godmother bippity boppity boos that shit together for her. Right. So at least in certain versions, uh, and that transformation of clothes of, of her all of a sudden becoming this, you know, this princess done up in this gown and she's got the, the glass slippers on and the pumpkin becomes the carriage, and she's able to actually go to the ball and meet the prince, you know, is this reflection of her inner beauty, of the fact that she was a good person coming outwards. Yeah, it's and sort of... She is, she is... Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Yeah, she's worthy it's, to rule. Exactly. It's sort of a way of, of... The clothing itself is a magical way to transform this person who would not have seemed to be worthy of this station and almost try to, you know, to, to pull them out of their circumstances to a better, a better realm or, you know, to, to be on the same footing as a king or a queen for the night or whatever. Right. And in Cinderella's case that it's a just, it's just magic. Yes. It's a just choice. Yeah. There's that right. She, yeah. That this is what she should be doing. She shouldn't be being abused or as a scullery maid but she should be in a position where she can help others. The interesting thing about that transformation, though, too, is, again, clock strikes midnight, she runs out, her clothes are changing back to her scullery-made rags, and she leaves the glass slipper on the steps. And that is the only way that they can identify her. So they're going around. They don't know who this person is. So she is unrecognizable without the magic, without the magic veil of of accoutrement that she put on they cannot recognize her so it's sort of this weird this weird counterbalance like if somebody is truly good and just it should be identifiable no matter what you should be able to be able to see that and identify that and act in that way and have that be recognized and perceived no matter what but that's not the case hardly ever um, philosophically or in sort of real, real life. Right, and, right. And I was, this yeah. is what, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. it kind of builds into this idea mm -hmm. of the, you know, uh, there's this idea out there in like social critique or the critique of, say, whatever, capitalism or American society, however the hell you want to call it, whatever. But the idea is this mm -hmm. critique says that, you know, one of the 
one of the biggest issues that we as a society or as a culture have kind of put up and almost almost made for ourselves is this idea that be, it, if you are rich, you deserve to be rich. Or if you mm-hmm. are if you are rich, if you are wealthy, if you're well off, in some way you are more you're more moral or you are uh, chosen by God. And it's actually a big it's a big uh, it's sort of a big attack on evangelical churches in the United States in particular mm-hmm. because you know, you have the, in Catholicism, you have this idea of like the Beatitudes where there's, um, you know, uh, blessed are the poor for they are rich in yes. spirit or, you know, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Yes. There's this, this idea of being poor, being poor is actually its own, that to be poor is to be closer to God almost in the, in the way that those things are said. Now, whether or not that's, um, whether or not that's like a social reading of, uh, the Bible or these papal bulls or these ideas that come out later on as they're made historically by real humans living in real societies. That's a whole other question and we could get into that forever. Right. But that's a whole um, other Marxist argument we could make, <laughs> but no, but seriously, come it's on. A good point. no, no, I, no, no, but it's, dude, but it's, tr- but it's true though. Like there is something, there is something to the idea that we do tend to think that, we have almost kind of a we have almost two minds about it in the United States. We think that because someone is successful, they must be smart, and that success doesn't have a lot to do with luck or with just being in the right place at the right time or even being born into it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, we look down on people like um, Paris Hilton, who, by all accounts, is a very savvy businesswoman who is fucking killing it right now by making loads of money. But we we look down on her because she's doing it in a way that we don't think is, I don't know, legitimate, I guess. It's, it's almost again, going back to the idea of nouveau riche, right? She is not, it's not old money. It's not an appropriate. No, but she, see, that's the thing though. I I actually think it's the other way. I think because she is old money, we expect her to act a different way. Yes. Well, that's what I'm like. That's, I think that that's sort of the, the flip side. And again, that's almost like back to the royalty. Like if, if someone is Royal, and they dress a certain way, and they act in a certain way. But I think mostly, like, if they dress in certain garments in certain time periods, that is that is very appropriate versus someone who is considered, again, like, what's considered, quote-unquote, new money. And that's what is... The weird thing is it's, like, that's represented through physical dress. That's how you perceive it. Like Paris Hilton from, like you're saying, it's a perception. She is from what, from what could be considered somewhat old money within American standards, but she's does not, does not, we do not perceive it as such. Is that kind of what you were going for? Yeah. I just totally messed that up. No, no, sort of. I mean, I think it's, I think it's almost, damn it, Marie. Damn Damn it. it. No, I think it's, the the, oh, the, the deconstruction, you know, the postmodern deconstruction of Paris Hilton is it's, it is something that that will rip people asunder. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, no, yeah, no. <laughs> I think it. I think kind of what I was getting at is the idea that we expect even people that make money but do it in a stupid way, right? Like we want we want mm-hmm. these sto- like people that win the lottery, right? We want mm-hmm. them to deserve to win the lottery like right like we we think of money as like something you get if you deserve it or you should deserve it you know what i mean and so Mm -hmm. people that just like 
So we look down on people that make their money from, you know, if you fell on, if you fell on a sidewalk and sued the city for a million dollars, we would look down on that in some ways. But then, Mm -hmm. but then if you invest it wisely afterwards and your child is, uh, is raised in money and is using it again in interesting ways or whatever, we don't think of it as anything, right? And, or, or we don't think of that child as then, um, having made the money in an unscrupulous way. We think of them as, oh, well, they must be really smart or whatever, or even just the access that money buys you. We then assume that, you know, oh, well, you know, oh, they went to Harvard, but in many ways going to Harvard, while there are some very extremely talented and smart people who've gone to Harvard, in some ways, a lot of those schools, it's like, it's just like the pipeline. You know what I mean? You just get in because, yes. you know, your, your daddy got in and, and, you know what I mean? His daddy and whatever, right? Down the line. Right. And so in some ways, it's, and it's, it's kind of an interesting, um, and I also actually think it's kind of what we do to Paris Hilton is in, in some ways actually uh, a little bit what we do to Donald Trump too. In the sense that I remember being mm. a kid and Donald mm-hmm. Trump was always, and they, you know, they talk about this a lot when you read about him. I think in some ways we treat Paris Hilton kind of like we treat Donald Trump almost where there was this. So when I was growing up, I fucking loved Donald Trump. Like I can't even, I can't even explain to you, Marie, how big of a hit his run for president actually was for me. Cause I always like, okay, it wasn't like, it wasn't like, I think you're going to have to try. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't like a personal (laughs) front or anything, I guess. Maybe this Uh, is like too much. I, I always kind of not looked up to is maybe the wrong term, but like, I always liked, I liked the story of Donald Trump as a kid. I found him to be a fascinating character. And I think partly why I found him so fascinating was because like he was this businessman who kind of was like sort of involved with the mob, sort of involved with crime. And at the same time, kind of like, I don't know, like kind of legitimate. So like, I remember when I was a kid, we went to Atlantic city every single summer for like weeks like we would always go to Atlantic City, and I love this. Yeah, love this this, we, this should be a treatment for Netflix. Is Chris and the family going to Chris and the family going to Atlantic City? When That's I was like, awesome. when I was like ten, my Nona was like, she'd start giving us fifty bucks and just be like, "Go play some machines. You're good kids." Like, oh my god, no. and no one ever like it was it was a Trump casino, so no one ever gave a shit. You know what I mean? Like whatever. The woman hey, would nice kid has some yeah, like out. the woman would come up and be like, "You want a scotch?" Like, no, thank you, ma'am. I'm seven. You know what I mean? Where's the arcade? She'd be like, "Don't worry about it, sweetie," and then pinch my butt and run away. Like, ah, you know what I mean? Like, it was a really weird. And I think partly too why I liked Donald Trump or why I why I thought he was so interesting was because Donald Trump was like, in some ways, Donald Trump was like the guy my dad wanted to be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like. Like mm-hmm. I could definitely see my dad's personality was such that he would have loved to have been Donald Trump. Like, oh, wow. you know, like mm-hmm. a casino guy again, like kind of involved in the mob, but not really. You know what I mean? Like all that stuff, all that shit. My dad found fascinating too. So anyways, so, but I, but there was always, there was always this idea and you always see it too in the treatments of Trump in stories or autobiographies or bio, I mean, autobiographies, biographies about him where they say like a big driving force for him was always like his father was looked down on because his dad operated mostly in Queens real estate, right? He was like outer borough mm-hmm. real estate and mm-hmm. Trump 
because they were rich was like in classes and schools and stuff with all of these kids whose parents were operating in Manhattan. And mm-hmm. it was always almost like a class thing where, okay, you're rich, but you're not as rich as us, right? You're it's new wealth. You're, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. It's like, unlegitimate. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. like, you know, you're, Oh, you're Queens rich, but you're not Manhattan rich, you know? And yes. that's definitely still the case. Like, you know, um, and I think because the threshold to get into obviously like, real estate and run the risks and stuff in an outer borough of New York city, like Staten Island real estate, you can own a couple of houses. I mean, you'd have to be like a millionaire, you know what I mean? But it's not like the, the threshold to even getting into that game where you could buy a second property is not so astronomically high that you can't see anyone doing it as Manhattan. Right. But Manhattan, it's like you need hundreds of millions just to even, you know, turn a profit. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so anyways, so yeah, I definitely feel like that we have this kind of idea of, of new money versus old money. And one of the, one of the determining or, you know, determinant factors of old money is the way that they act, the way that they dress and their Mm -hmm. access to these things that were previously impossible. Right. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. So the access so, to power. Really exactly. Is what it is. And, and in it's many, like the, yeah. yeah. And in many ways, the clothing that people wear is indicative of that access to clothing. And one, you know, what, actually, while we were, while we were talking about this with Trump, mm-hmm. one thing that I find mm-hmm. really fascinating too, is the kind of clunky ways that politicians will sometimes try to play down that difference of personhood. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, you'll see like Obama in like a golf t-shirt Mm-hmm. Right. And it's, and it just looks weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's like seeing your, I don't know. Like, it's like, like if I had ever, if I ever saw my grandma in pants, I probably would have shit myself. I would have been like, what well, the fuck is going on? No, Cause Nona, you know, Nona's a high roller, man. I well, can tell like, that right now. No, no, like, but see, like she never, she would have never even no. considered wearing pants. Right. And so if I ever no, saw her in pants, I would have been like, what is happening here? Or, you what know, kind of, Parallel universe, dark timeline. Shit, is this? No, really no, though. No. I even actually think I'm actually thinking too. This is like my my PhD advisor always wore a full suit with a vest and everything, no matter how hot it was outside. Until one day he came to group meeting in like a in biking shorts and a t shirt, or like basketball shorts and a t shirt. And I remember being so uncomfortable with the way he was dressed that I could not focus. Everyone lost their shit. That I was, was like, funny. what is happening? That's Why funny. is Sun Ho dressed like this? I don't get it. Anyways. So, no, okay. I, Let's I get back to the there's. I think that there's something to, like, the aspirational nature, right? Like, if even if you are, again, you're a scullery maid, you're looking at royalty, you're, quote-unquote, new wealth, trying to, you're tr- you're always trying to achieve something. And again, that's like, that's seen in, that's seen in any fairy tale with either it's beauty, uh, beauty and the beast. Well, it's, it's even that sleeping beauty emperor's new clothes. They're, they're aspiring to something that may or may not even be real. Like is the perception of what they're putting upon greater than what that thing truly is, is my, is my other thought. But when you look at actual, the actual royalty, so you had brought up sort of the coronation, and um, we had been, we were looking at, again, all of these, all of these clothes metaphors happening in fairy tales involving royalty. 
went back and I, I did just look at like what people actually, what royalty actually wore during the coronation, which is when basically they are the new king or the new queen is, is taking the throne. And there are so many different garments. And like, if you picture it in your head, like if you picture the idea of the coronation, you, even as an American, you kind of have a, you know, you can get a mental picture of the ermine robe with the red velvet, the very ornate, uh, the very ornate crown, and then the scepter and the globe, right? It's sort of the most common. But I was looking at just from the from early on, each of the garments that they are clothed in has a name and a metaphor. So there's the anointing garment, which is like the first thing they put on, which is just a plain white garment, and it's just fastened in back. But then there's like the cap of a state, which is worn under, uh, which is worn, it's not an actual cap, but it's like worn under the cap. There's the cap of maintenance. There's all of these different symbolic uh symbolic things that represent the royal authority and each of them have their own name and sort of their own um volition within the ceremony um one of the big things that did happen is the coronation dress of her majesty queen elizabeth ii was a big deal because it was a clear break in tradition but was still this hugely splendored beautiful effect but it was a dress with a shorter sleeve and a fitted bodice and a fuller skirt so it was making it more modern it was breaking with tradition and it caused quite a i guess quite a kerfuffle when you wait when um, you when you say that they so when you say that huh, they have mm-hmm. these like caps and things are these made for every royal so they're made so like the crimson surcoat this is this is like it is made for the upcoming royal or the upcoming royal will do something or from what I'm able to to divine from the brief amount of there's a huge amount, a huge volumes on. Yeah, I can, I can only imagine. Yeah, I mean, so just just skimming the surface as a new monarch comes into power, they will make some sort of uh, adjustment to the coronation outfit that sort of signifies their reign. It could just be, you know, a different, a different surcoat, a different cap, a different gown, or some some slight variation. But it normally is fitting. It's it's like nobody's going to show up in a pantsuit, right? Okay, I mean, but it's like, like but like bandage under the eye. <laughs> yeah, it's a very slight. Is that okay? It's a very slight different. Uh, if it's bejeweled. Uh, if it is bejeweled, so of course. <laughs> the crystal. Subtly, subtly bejeweled. But one of the things that I found that I thought was really interesting, so again, there's a huge amount, huge volumes on, on this whole, this whole uh, look and this whole um, coronation. But the things that I thought were the most interesting, not so much as the gowns of what they're wearing, but what they're carrying. And in 1902, um, a ginormous diamond was found in South Africa. And this diamond was over 3,000 carats. It is roughly the size of a, I want to say like a softball is how big it was. Damn. Right? So it was presented to the crown 
of England as part of their royal jewels. And it's called the Cullinan One Diamond. And it's also, I believe, the jewel of, or the star of Africa. And it was broken into many different pieces. And the largest piece was put in the staff or the scepter that carried, was carried by Queen Elizabeth. And the staff or the scepter is representing the shepherd's staff. So this is what she is using to look after her flock, which is pretty much, you know, whatever the sun doesn't set on for the English empire, right? So, and it has this ginormous gem, this ginormous, flawless, beautiful diamond in it. Uh, and then on her, in her other hand, she carries the orb, which is the gold orb that's encrusted with jewels in a banded pattern all the way around it and topped with a cross. And that represents basically the globe, the world. And so these two things together signify she is the shepherd, the God divine shepherd of, the, of this world. Hmm. And it's very literal, but it's also very like, it's crazy in a lot of ways because it's, it, when you start to look at it, you're like, well, that makes sense. That's a very literal, a uh, very literal, um, kind of metaphor. on the nose, but it's yeah. also, it's also like, that is what the king or the queen is imbued with. She is the queen. There's, this is the monarchy. And what's interesting too, is when you start to think about, again, this, this huge gem that was presented back to them as a gift from one of their uh, from one of their colonies, basically, is there's a lot that now goes on with South Africa and South African diamonds and the process of mining them and the conflict, what's called a conflict diamond or a blood diamond, that this stone basically drives people to 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 open warfare and conflict so they can make money and so they can sell it. And that's just, it's sort of this insidious, almost like a curse or the magic that's coming out of this staff has this slightly tainted legacy. It's going to give her the ability to rule. It's the magic of, of the coronation. And she is now the sovereign queen of England. But with it comes this, this tainted history of, of, of poverty and of strife. Right. Well, and, and so, yeah. of, of all this unfair, like this, these incredible cl class divisions and racism that, that, you know, that will, that will keep affecting, that will keep affecting her colonies past and present as long as that diamond has that value. Well, in some ways, in some ways, it's the ultimate sign of, uh, the ultimate sign of privilege, right? To be able mm -hmm. to spend such vast sums on what is essentially a shiny rock, right? Um, yes. That has really no intrinsic value, right? I mean, we give it intrinsic yep. value. We give it yep. value by trading for it. But ultimately, it's not like it's a thing necessary for uh, continued survival, right? It's not like, I mean, you can see why... Uh, food would be traded for animals or right. Like you could see why water mm -hmm. would be traded or whatever. You can see logically where that happened or why that occurred, but why uh, gold became our form of currency or diamonds became a valuable thing. It's hard to see. And really diamonds, it's kind of interesting. Um, diamonds really 
started as a whole thing during uh, the eighteen late 1800s, early 1900s uh, by mining companies selling it as the ultimate sign of love for engagement gifts, mm-hmm. right? The engagement ring with a diamond became the symbol, right? But it yes. also, but really uh, what's kind of fascinating now today is that, you know, we can make diamond in the lab, right? <laughs> any any intrinsic value mm-hmm. it once had. So diamond for, for listeners. Um, I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it, because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's, I mean, let's get into the science here of all this stuff. Science some of this shit. So Diamond diamond is... (laughs) Gonna wait for Marie's science intro. So Diamond is just carbon. It's carbon in a very specific uh, crystal crystallographic form, and so carbon is a carbon is the most abundant um, element on the Earth, um, next to like oxygen, nitrogen, or nitrogen probably uh, is is next on that list, if not even actually first, maybe. But carbon is one of the most prominent elements in. in it's certainly the most prominent in biological or or organic uh, organisms, right? So. Carbon is the backbone for all of the chemicals in our body. It's uh, extremely important chemically, and it can take a lot of different forms because of its prevalence in chemistry, right? So carbon, mm-hmm. you can see primarily uh, carbonaceous molecules in the form of ash or coal. Coal is a form of carbon. Um, mm-hmm. Carbon, uh, carbon like graphite in uh, pencils, that's actually carbon as well, Um Basically, it's just really thin layers of carbon sheets um, that turns into graphene, another very expensive, very useful material or hope, hoped to be useful material in electrochemistry and, and in chemistry generally. And what graphene is, is it's um, one to two nanometer thick layers of carbon sheets, and they kind of stack on top of each other like a like a deck of cards and this is kind of the work, the, the type of material that I worked with. Um, they're known as layered materials, and they have interesting properties and things. Um, but graphite and graphene and um, all of these these forms of, of carbon are going to be are, are becoming more and more important. Graphite, not so much graphite we've had forever, but graphene, that that thinner layer of carbon, those individual layers are extremely important now um, in nanotechnology. But so anyways diamond the way that it forms is it requires very very high pressures and temperatures and long periods of time and so that's why you only find it uh, deep in the ground in mines and things right mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so in the lab mm-hmm. when we make diamond the way that we make it is we basically get to those same conditions that we would normally find in the center of a mine shaft right so extremely high pressures extremely high temperatures and really pressure and temperature kind of go as pressure goes up, temperature goes up as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, it's kind of they, they kind of go hand in hand. So really, it's it's high pressures that's important. And so, as you get to that pressure, your uh, you can make. I mean, we can really make uh, many different types of gems nowadays uh, with these kind of 
big pressing mm-hmm. machines, basically. Mm-hmm. But the reason that diamond is diamond is actually actually does have intrinsic value, but it's not because of the way it looks. Diamond has intrinsic value because it's really useful in machining and in other yeah. applications, yeah. right? Diamond, yeah. um, diamond is the hardest, uh, one of the hardest solids. I think it is, if not still the hardest solid, it is one of the hardest solids, which means that it can, um, basically diamond can scratch anything, but nothing can scratch diamond. Now diamond can cleave. It can, it can break along crystal grains in the solid itself. Mm-hmm. So a way of thinking about that is like, imagine you have a block of wood and you can see where the lines go down the wood, like the wood grain. And you know how you can like hit that with an ax and it'll cleave along that grain. The yeah. same exact thing is true yeah. of, of, of crystals. Crystals can also cleave in that same way. Right. And Which is, they, they do talk a little bit about that with the cutting process of yeah. whittling this ginormous stone down into nine different stones. Right. And, and really, and that's kind of the part of diamonds. That's really the part of, like, if you saw a raw diamond, you would not necessarily think it's very beautiful. Or even a raw emerald or ruby, any of them, they're cloudy. They're kind of hard to see. You know what I mean? It's just like a, Mm -hmm. it just kind of looks like any other kind of opaque, semi-colorful rock. It is the breaking and the cleaving of the rock into surfaces that can actually, like, reflect and refract light the right way to make it look like it's shining. That is where, um... That is where diamonds and emeralds and rubies and all those other garbage things get their uh, get their value, right? And it's, what's fascinating yeah. now, what's fascinating now, Marie, is you were talking about this idea of a of these economies getting ravaged by the removal of diamonds from them, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's actually a really well known idea in economics, known as um, a uh, basically like a an extractive economy, right? Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that you have this economy where someone else is coming and paying workers measly amounts of money to remove a wealth, a wealthy or a valuable, you know, a valuable resource and is then doing stuff, processing that resource someplace else and then selling you back the, the result of that work. Right. So yeah. a really good example of this is West Virginia. Um, companies Mm -hmm. from other states, other countries sometimes are mining coal from West Virginia. They then take it to other states to burn it and then sell the energy back to West Virginia. That is like a really bad, it just, all it does, Mm because once the coal is gone, once the thing that you're extracting is gone, you leave behind untrained workers non-educated populace is like because you're not you're not actually building anything in that state it's not a sustainable it's not a sustainable economic exactly and a huge and and one of the biggest but diamonds whatever diamonds are their own sort of big problem but one really huge problem in science right now and in engineering generally that is trying to be solved is the lack of rare earth metals and Mm. um specifically their use in magnets so elements like neodymium and um, these things that you find in magnets, if we don't, we, they're very, they're rare. They're hard to find. They're called rare earth elements and they are very rare. And so we are running out of them onto the earth. <laughs> and so a lot of research is going into um, finding ways to create magnets that 
don't that use more abundant elements like iron and aluminum and uh you know whatever sulfur arsenic like these weird kind of like transition metal uh alloys and semi-metal alloys whatever that can then make uh magnets that might be useful you know for our use in like engines and and all these other places right but so like so the only yeah, place we need them. the only place in the world that has these rare earth elements anymore break in any abundance really is North Korea. Um <laughs> which is Good like kind of shitty. Solid. You know, but yeah. yeah, they have they have access. I think it's them and China have yeah. the most rare earth metals. Yeah. But that you need. It's like I think the thing that always boggles my mind about diamonds is you don't you you they they can be utilized for certain things. But it's uh, for most people like most people aren't getting diamonds so they can etch their you No, know. so they can run computers <laughs> off of them. Right, so they can They're make getting their, them to wear. Yeah, they're yeah. a symbol of they're a symbol of rarity. And it comes it too is a really driven by a marketing campaign of the De Beers a diamond is forever. Right. Yeah. Right? So you don't you, you know, you don't just rebuy them or you're creating this sort of false scarcity because it is something that is that is going to be kept and passed down through generations. And that sort of helps drive this inherent value up. It's again, it's a total perception. It's not there is no worth to that diamond. Yeah. I mean, when you if you look online at the crown jewels of which this diamond is now a, is one of the largest. I mean, it's it is still the largest. It's still huge. It's, it's still a huge, it's huge stone. It's ridiculous. And it's and it is beautiful. It is phenomenal looking. But it's to me, it's just like again with the magic of it and what it what it magically represents at a coronation or in royalty versus sort of what that ex colony or what that country had to do to produce it. Right. Yeah, is, it's kind of is this huge inequity and this huge question of like, really? Is that is that like but at the same time, like you're almost again, it's like the Emperor's new clothes, you're almost overwhelmed by the need for that pageantry. If you look at a coronation or, or a royal wedding or anything that really has this this investment in in Oh, almost over the top, right? It's like, you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like it is very captivating. And so I think that there's, that's sort of the spell of, of the magic that it puts you under in a real life sense is that you can kind of forget everything else that has to go into it because you're so, the pageantry and the tradition and the the history behind just preserving that thing is so amazing. Right. Well, it also, doesn't make it right. It still makes it pretty amazing, but it's not exactly right. Right, sure. Well, it also it also brings about questions of, you know, the beauty of nature. Like in in when we're old and gray, when we're like in our 120s, let's say. <laughs> so like next week for me, dude. <laughs> when we're don't say that, Marie. Dude, when we're, dude, when, it's when, all true. When we're uh when we're, you know, whatever when uh you know when 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 uh whatever when we're older <laughs> we'll, i i i had like a porky pig moment i was like when a, when a, when a, when a, when a, when a, you know with the when a, when a, when a, um when we when in 100 years how are you going to be able to tell the difference between a real diamond and a fake diamond well there will, there right? will be some other way of 
making it more, making one versus the other more important or more relevant or well, more of course, powerful. Well, but, but I find it fascinating, though, this idea of like, you know, it, it's almost the imperfections in the real one that give it away, right? And it yes. is literally just the price. Like, there is no way outside of there being some stupid, you know, a document or something proving, okay, this diamond came from this mine and it cost mm-hmm. this many people's lives to mine it. And mm-hmm. right, like mm-hmm. there is no clear providence to like where this thing came from. If you just had two diamond rings in front of you and you had to pick which one was the real one, and which one was the fake one. And you didn't know the price of the ring. You didn't, you know what I mean? Like, I think you would have a very hard time distinguishing between the two in any um, yes outside. You know, and it's the same thing. It's the same I thing agree. with a lot of things that we we give inherent value to, but you know, there really isn't. I mean, like art or um, mm-hmm. art or wine, even or like these are mm-hmm. things that you experience. And of course, we do experience diamonds or gemstones as well, and we experience clothing, but ultimately the value of a piece of clothing or the value of a thing generally is what value society gives it. Right. Because clothes are not, they do not actually have intrinsic properties to them. I mean, of course, like a coat, a winter coat is worth something because it keeps you warm. Right. But the difference between a hundred dollar coat that keeps you warm and a $50 coat that keeps you warm and a $25 coat that keeps you warm. So long as they both keep they all three of them keep you warm. There really is no difference outside of the social status that owning one over the other gives you. Right. Yes. Or the construct that you are creating your identity with. Right. 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 And you know, it's funny. I remember when I was a kid, um, when I was a kid, my, uh, my dad's family, my dad's like side, whatever, my parents got divorced and my dad's uh, part of that, whatever, was very poor, you know, the whole time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, continue, you know, remains, uh, remains poor. Right. But um, when I was a kid, I remember we used to get shirts from, well, you know, just like hand me downs or from those stores, whatever, like Goodwill or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I remember one time I got a shirt that had Andrea Bocelli on it. And I just like, I was like 15. I didn't know who Andrea Bocelli was. I just like had this weird shirt that I thought was kind of cool looking. And so I wore it to school and this girl who never talked like this very, like very super religious, um, you know, like she was nice and whatever. Like we, we would, you know, pass each other and we they weren't enemies or anything, but certainly she never hung out with the kind of, you know, kids that I hung out with. Right. Um, in class, she was like, oh, Chris, do you, do you like, what, what, what is your favorite aria from Andrea Bocelli? You know? And I was like, what? And I never wore the shirt again, Marie. Oh, I was like, I don't know shit about this shirt. I don't know who this guy is. Who I'm is not gonna this? Wear yeah. You know what, what I mean? Done? And my, my dad what was just like, my dad I was just like, I thought it was weird that you took that one, but whatever. I figured, you know what I mean? I'm not going to question it. Who cares? But, what? um, yeah, it's Wait. super weird. Well, you were talking about like how if it keeps you warm, right? It's like we so we were just vacationing in Boulder, Colorado, and we are walking around downtown, and like every single store is like it's a Patagonia or it's a North Face or REI, but Boulder because it's Boulder also has you know it has the more 
the more, even the further outside of that spectrum for outdoor wear. There's this one there that I, I had never seen before, and it's Swedish. And I want to say it's Fjordraven. <laughs> like oh, Paul we have like, we have one of them here. Paul and I were trying to pronounce it, and I'm like, Fjordraven? Yeah, no, we have, oh my Fjord, God. Fjordraven. Fjord, Fjord and it's like the, the logo is this cute little fox and it's very, and you're looking at it and I was like, oh, let's go in because I haven't seen it. Yeah. I'm, I don't know anything about it. Like I know what an REI or, you know, Athleta or what, you know, all of those things. Okay. And I'm like, wow. And I'm like, look at this, you know, here's a winter coat. And it's like very austere and thick and just very like. Like, you look at it and you're like, oh, shit, yeah, that's mountaineering, man. That's some serious shit. You're not just fucking, you know, car camping, man. Right. You're, that's a Himalayan. You're, you know, that's the shit right there. And I'm like, well, how much is this? Because, again, like, I, I don't, <laughs> not being the outdoorsy person. No, there's no, right. there's no, to value no, there's, there's no concept. Like, how do you know? Right. I'm like, I'm like, how much is this? It was $600. Oh, my God. And I'm like. I'm like holy shit and again not this coat was a nice coat i am certain that it would keep you warm and it had it, it, again like looking at it in comparison to sort of a north face and our or uh, an rei it's a marked difference it's like it's almost like it's almost like swedish modern furniture and sort of the austerity of it <laughs> like in the, the plainness right. the minimal like this is what a mountaineering shirt looks like if it's boiled down to the essence of the mountain. Right, it, it, has, it has one large button uh, instead of a bunch yes. of smaller buttons. <laughs> like, it's, you yeah. know, and I was like, it's cool, but I'm like, it's $600. And I'm yeah. looking around and I'm like, it's a fucking racket, man. It's like, this is Fjord of Vegan. This is not. And it's like kids' jackets, 200, 300. Damn. Like there's, there's no, you know, or just, and I'm like, this is, how does. First of all, if you're mountaineering, I used to think, okay, so mountaineering is a sport where you do not need to, you need to have more skill than anything else, right? You have more knowledge and more skill. Because if you're going up a mountain, you have to have, sure, you have to have equipment, but you also have to know what you're doing, right? And it doesn't matter if that, again, if that, if that jacket is a $700 jacket or a $50 jacket, if it keeps you warm and it achieves what you need as a knowledgeable mountaineering person, then you should be able to partake in that sport. Yeah, but you know what, though? Like, mountaineering is such, like, a rich sport. Yes. Like, like it think, is. Like, think about it. it like, the, the Sherpas that they, that these people who are shopping at this store and spending thousands of dollars on, you know, um, you know, nano Yeah, you know, like, ridiculous gloves and all this other crap, whatever. They're getting taken up the mountain with a Sherpa who probably makes $50 a week, if if that, and is probably wearing a jacket that someone in his town made for him. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like it's, And it's like, it blew my mind, because it's like, I know it's, it's, it's definitely a wealthy pastime, but at the same time, should it? Like, is that... Was it always a wealth? Because then it got me, like, kind I mean, of who, who has the time to, like... Yeah, of course it's a wealthy pastime. I mean, who else in the world? Like, can you could you take two months off from work to train to climb a mountain? Uh, not necessarily. I can't. I can't get three days off because I want to play. You know what I mean? Horizon Zero Dawn, and that's climbing mountains in a fake world. 
Like, no, it's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, it's no. Like, of course, it it is. That is one of those, like, penultimate rich people um, things. And it's, it's of course, I mean, it is. It's no, it's that's fascinating to me. That's it, it, it's ridiculous. doing well. It's drawing air. It's like it exists. That sewer exists. And then I was like, is this just like, like, again, because like right down the block, there's four other stores that have something similar, but they're not the same. You know, so it's like, man, the diversity of the market that all of these places can be self-sustaining and can drive so much money in this one tiny town, which is not very big, but it's just become so affluent, just made me scream, I fucking hate Boulder. I don't, I don't hate Boulder, but it's like, wow, that's, that's very Boulder. It's not. Yeah, I'm from Boulder. I can say that. I'm teasing. But um, <laughs> it is like, it's jarring. It is something that it does bring up sort of loathing because it's like, man, this is, there's people actually that are cold. <laughs> right. Know? Right. In Denver, there's people that are cold. And this is, in this Norfolk is this much money. Well, you know, so Anyways, what's kind yes. of, what's kind of interesting to me is, so. So before we wrap this episode up, um, this first one on magical clothing, and we're going to have a much darker episode. The next episode is much darker, but I like it. I think it's going to be great. The way to sell it, Chris. Thank you. It's going to be phenomenal. Um, so the idea of like, maybe not the brand person. So I like this idea of clothing now, though, becoming functional again, almost where there are companies that are I, I remember okay i have two ridiculous stories first off because I, whatever because mm-hmm. this is the way that this show is happening um when i was in again like i don't know middle school whatever like another kind of faux pas that i i had um i remember i was allowed to pick out my own glasses frames for the first time because mm. my mom's insurance was like really good and so we went to the store and i got to pick out my own frames and the frames I picked had this logo on the side that said head H E A D. And I thought I was like, Oh, these are such cool glasses. I'm just going to get them. And when I went to school, I got mercilessly made fun of because people were like, nice blowjob glasses, Chris. And I was like, come on. I didn't even know that was a thing. I was like 12. I was so upset. I was so upset. Marie I'm still upset. Anyways, that's a little bit a, a slight reach for a pair of glasses. I mean, granted, a grade schooler will. I can see that. Listen. I can see it, but it's like, good God, seriously, people, fucking hell. I was so mad. Anyways, whatever. So the the other there story, was no magic to be had. That no day magic. Those, glasses, those glasses did not protect me from the merciless bullying no. I got for those stupid glasses. No. Anyways, uh, I, I think it only went on for like two weeks until they found some other stupid thing to make fun of on someone else. But whatever. So. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm thinking of, though, too, is the idea of clothing now, like, like, you ever, I, I remember when this first happened to me, we had this guy in my high school who I'm not going to say his name. Come but on. I'm not going to say his name. No, I'm not going to. But there is a, I mean, the, there is a story to this person that is like, it's like a half hour long story. And it's amazing. He was involved in like this, this statewide, uh, robbery thing and whatever and like he was it was, was ridiculous i think he might listen to the show too i hope uh i hope if you're listening that it is okay i'm not gonna say your name but i if, if you give your consent for me to tell the story i will tell the story and make it famous because it is a hilarious fucking story famous as famous as we can make anything I, yet like, yeah, yeah 
you going to Atlantic City with Nona and I have to Scott? Okay, I have to. And like, and then the wildlings running through the streets in Halloween, and now you're like, oh yeah, I'm my button high school. It was a cross, you know, it was a cross state lines federal investigation into you know, what? Not even kidding, Marie. Not even kidding. I think he got out for <sighs> turning state's witness. Not even kidding. You know, I've never had that option presented to me, and I might take it. <laughs> I would definitely I take it. I might take it. I would definitely take it. Okay. Okay, Something anyways. new? Something different? Okay. So, he used to come to school and... They always put you in Florida, though, so I don't know about that. No, I wouldn't like it in Florida. Uh, yeah. It's fine. Allig- alligators. Okay, keep going. Okay, so, uh, he came to school one day, and he had on a shirt that was waterproof, mm. and he was, like, this, this kid was super tall and, like, kind of, like, had a really deep, like weird acts like he was just kind of like a like a big like imagine like a puppy dog in a human's body right he was just like a big puppy dog and so he puppy dog is gonna get you arrested eventually but okay okay. so like boundless optimism ridiculous ideas whatever Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. uh he he had this shirt that was waterproof and it had a uh, it had like a teflon uh, outer coating to it or something and it was like bright yellow and he was like, yo, try to throw water at me. It won't even hurt my shirt. And so for like 10 minutes in homeroom in the beginning of the day, we people were just like throwing water at him. Where and are he, your teachers? And he was What's like, going he was like, look, it just, it just rolls right off. Nothing happens. It was ridiculous. <laughs> Completely ridiculous. Anyways, the, but like the idea of now making clothing that is like functional. So one, one thing that I want to talk about before we finish this episode is the, um, uh, the kind of clothes. It's good because I can't get beyond like your upbringing. I'm your sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm tripping. I'm tripping out. <laughs> tripping out <laughs> over doing here. well. Uh, there is this, uh, like the idea of uh, personal protective stuff or PPE in a lab. Mm-hmm. And it's like one of the most important things that we cover all the time in, uh, in science. But it's like, I don't think people realize just how important it is. But like there are... Um, there are goggles that you can buy that are lab safety goggles that will actually melt to your face. If acid is like a uh, boiling near you and the gas just hits your face, right? Like the goggles themselves will melt. Or I even had a pair oh of God. glasses. I had a pair of glasses with some kind of like scratch proof surface coating that um, I was doing an experiment and the coating itself uh, corroded and my glasses became useless. Like there's like, there's all kinds of crazy stuff with that. But one, uh, one really scary story that I wanted to tell, tell before this episode ended was there's a compound known as methyl mercury and it is so, uh, it's so easily transported through different barriers and membranes and stuff that it can actually get through the blood brain barrier uh. and uh, get to your brain and kill you in like a week you won't know that you're gonna die but you will die and what it what it does what it can do actually is it can get through lab it can get through lab gloves um so like you know like the the nitrile gloves you'll wear if you're in a laboratory it can get through those and so don't mess with this stuff no no no, i don't i don't i'm like why are you handling no 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 no, no, i don't i don't handle it but it's it's uh What's it doing in there? It's crazy. What are you doing with this? People, what is, what's science doing with this? People use it for NMR, for uh, nuclear magnetic resonance, I think. And so, oh no um, way, no way, seriously? Yeah. 
How much? Would, no, really? Yeah. And it's, uh, and anyways, it. Molybdenum? Um, is it molybdenum? It's not, no, no, it's methyl mercury. It's, it's a mercury okay. compound. Um, and anyways, so it's a, uh, but it's, it is, it's terrifying and it can actually get through your gloves and, um, yeah. Kill so you. There was a story, I think I even have told this on the air before, there was a story of a scientist who was pipetting some for an experiment and some of it got on her glove without her realizing and she ended up, she did, she died of mercury poisoning. Um, about, this is like, why we need later. to put you in a witness protection. Is this why? Yeah. This is one of the reasons so we can put you somewhere safe. Just get me out of rotation. So like a, I don't know. Just you know? get me out of rotation here, Marie. Just get you out of rotation from coming in contact with this stuff. Ridiculous. Yeah. That is scary. Anyways. All right. So that is the end of this episode on magical clothing. We oh will be God. back next week <laughs> with... With us. more stories of doom and more clothing. stories of doom and gloom and clothing and pants and all kinds of cool stuff. As always, I am your host, oh, Chris Cogswell, Marie Mayhew, but, and my co-host. But before, Marie. but before, but before we sign out, we should say: speaking of clothing, please go check out Redbubble.com and look for Mad Scientist fabulous merch. Yes, we have a bunch of really there. cool stuff there. We have so. Cool. It is really cool. It's a really awesome, like a tarot card uh, design, and then all this other cool stuff too with it. We have stuff up on uh, Threadless, as always. We also have stuff yes. open or available now. Buttons on um, on not bad luck, which is awesome. So uh, insanely cool. I've so got this cool. coming too. Oh my goodness! Like, I just I just keep putting. I just like. I saw it and I saw I, I see all this stuff and I'm like I'm buying that I'm buying that I'm like okay I should probably slow my roll yeah no I got I got that and a bunch of uh, last podcast buttons too and I'm super happy oh, with so them so cool so go buy some merch folks buy some it's merch. magical it's gonna it's be magical. great it's it's gonna transform you it really will and we will be back in we'll be back so soon in one week bye bye. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> so, no, right.